Welcome to Mexico Matters, the CSIS podcast about how events occurring in Mexico can impact and more importantly, matter in the United States. I am Mariana Campero, non-resident senior associate of the Americas program at CSIS and the former CEO of the Mexican Council on Foreign Relations, COMEXI. One of the first things that President Joe Biden did while in office was to stop wall construction at the southern border, and he also announced that he would end the harsh migration policies of former President Trump. In reality, however, very few policy changes have occurred, and the number of migrant encounters surpassed 1.6 million in the 2021 fiscal year. To talk about how the perception that the Biden administration would be less hostile to migrants, combined with a series of other poor and very harsh push factors in their home countries, that it is my pleasure to welcome Andrew Silly, president of the Migration Policy Institute and the author of Vanishing Frontiers, a book about how interconnected the economies and cultures of the US and Mexico are. Andrew, it is a true pleasure to have you on the show today. Are you at all surprised by the number and the diversity of the encounters? Mexican nationals comprise the largest group with approximately 600,000 people. But Border Patrol has reported seeing people from Russia, from Bangladesh, from India, from Eastern Europe, Brazil, Cuba, Haiti, and of course, people from the Northern Triangle. What is your take on this? You know, I, I think yes and no. I mean, there's some surprising things here, and then there's some some things that we could have seen coming. And the numbers are a little tricky to unpack. We we think because they're now counting the same people over and over again, if they cross multiple times, they've given us some of the breakdown and other things they haven't. So we, we think it's about 1.1 million people. That's a lot. But it was close to 900,000 two years ago in 2019. So it is, it's a more gradual increase than it seems. So it didn't surprise us, given that the Biden administration was a little more lenient on people coming in. They made exceptions for some nationalities and for unaccompanied minors and a number of families. So in some ways, I'm surprised the numbers didn't go up more than 2019. They went down in 2020 with the, the COVID epidemic and restrictions at the border. But what we always see is, you know, you put more enforcement measures at the border, the numbers go down for a while, but they eventually come back again. And sure enough, they did. The big surprise, I think, was the number of nationalities. I mean, the fact that this is no longer, and, you know, Mexicans, you know, the Mexicans get a lot of notice because it's sort of 600,000, but they're mostly adults. We think their recidivism rate, the repeat rate is about 50% or higher. So it's probably more like 300,000 Mexicans, which is a little higher than the usual of about 200,000, but it's not that much higher. So it's, you know, it's a small leap. But the big leap were Ecuadorians and Haitians and Nicaraguans and Venezuelans and people from other countries further afield that we have not seen in such large numbers before. There were more Ecuadorians that came to the U.S.-Mexico border than Salvadorans, right, in a country much closer with much more migration history. You know, that is surprising. And I think it also makes the, the whole situation of the border much more complex. When the question was around three small countries in Central America, and they're relatively small, Guatemala is a little larger, but, you know, Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador, manageable 
manageable conversation. A few Mexicans come and go, but largely it's become more of a legal flow. But when you start talking about a large number of countries, the issues become much more complicated, right? I mean, not infinitely complicated, but they do become much more complicated. And and I think that is the change in 2021 over 2019. Can you tell us when you say it is more complicated when we see countries from, you know, further away? Is it because it is easier to return people to Central America? Or what do you mean by complicated? Oh, I mean, a few things, primarily around Central America. No one's really been worried about Mexican nationals. I mean, because the reality is there's always been some undocumented flow across the border, but most Mexicans come legally. There's about 250,000 guest workers a year. There's Correct. lots of people, tens of thousands, right, who come for family reunification, others on professional visas. You know, Mexico is more of a legal flow. It's a big country next door. There's always going to be some mm -hmm. people jumping across the border. But so it, it worries people less. Central American flow is the one that really captured attention in the United States. And it was man obviously more manageable to return people to their countries, but also to create legal pathways to figure out how you you know, the U.S. does with Central America what it did with Mexico, which is expand access to seasonal worker visas. There's about eight to 10,000 a year in Central America versus 250,000 in Mexico. Mexico. You can see how you could expand that over a few years and we create real pathways for people to come. And you could also enforce it and you could also send people back who didn't then go through legal channels. So it's a manageable conversation, right? You could figure out how to how to create, and you don't have to create that many legal pathways in countries that are relatively medium, medium and small size. When you start throwing in, for example, Venezuelans who are maybe living in Colombia, which a number of the Venezuelans seem to be living in Colombia, or, you know, Nicaraguans coming from a country that is in, you know, severe decomposition, how do you send people back to those countries? These are people who are likely to have protection needs, they're likely to be in danger if you send them back. So it's a huge problem. And also, there's 5 million Venezuelans who are living other places in Latin America and the Caribbean. You know, I mean, it's a large number of people. If, it, if that number of people starts moving to the United States, starts realizing that, that life could be better in the U.S. than it is, yes, things are better in Colombia or Ecuador or Peru or Dominican Republic than life was in Venezuela. But hey, if they got to the United States, it would be a lot better because it hasn't been great. I mean, it's been better, but it hasn't been great. If they All can right. get to the United States, that's a, a really large number of people who might try and move at some point. I mean, Nicaragua even. Nicaragua is not a big country, but you can see with the decomposition going on in Nicaragua after the sham elections a couple of weeks ago, you know, how this, how you could suddenly see the country emptying out like Venezuela did. Not the size of Venezuela, but you could see a lot more people heading north. And so I think the dimensions of the problem become much bigger. And the, the conflicts become, these are countries with, you know, not that Honduras is in great shape, but these are countries that in many ways have even more complicated patterns of, of governance and repression and violence than than places that people were leaving already. And so I think it's going to be, you know, the options become narrower. The options become less palatable in some ways. I mean, I, I really don't know what you do. What do you do with the Venezuelans living in Colombia? Do you send them back to Colombia? Will Colombia take them back to the illegal yeah. present? Do you send them to Venezuela, a country that really is on border of collapse? These are tough questions. Andrew, you just spoke about a series of push factors happening throughout Latin America. However, migration occurs with a combination of both push and pull factors. And if we speak about the pull factors, the United States economy is growing at a pace not seen in decades. 
economic forecasters are saying or expecting real GDP growth of more than 5% this year. And if we add to that a recent reconciliation bill that, if approved by the Senate, will create the largest mass legalization program for undocumented migrants in U.S. history. Roughly 7 million undocumented people in this country will be eligible to apply for work permits, for permits to travel abroad, for driver's license. Many people say that these measures, if passed, would entice others to follow as they will see it as an enormous opportunity. Would this be adding another pull factor? What is your view of this? You know, the pull factors are definitely there. And they are, as you say, I mean, the, the heating U.S. economy, which which has a desire, you know, the, you see the help wanted sides everywhere in the United States and, and mm-hmm. you know, employers are looking for workers. And so that's the economy that, that brings migrants in. We've also seen U.S. immigration policy is not terribly effective at dissuading people from coming at the border. I mean, lots of people do, in fact, make it across the border. That was true under Obama. It's true under Trump. It's true under Biden. You know, large percentages of people actually are getting in because the system is overwhelmed and does not have the capabilities for processing people and returning them to their country of origin. So that's another draw. And so, you know, I think those are the biggest draws because people are sensitive to you know, and, and well, and then people's social networks are developed. So particularly with Central America, I mean, the big draw too is people now have the social networks, right? These have built up over time in the same way they did with Mexico, right? I mean, they've built up over time. People know that they have a cousin or an uncle or a sibling somewhere in the United States. That person tells them whether the economy is good or not, whether they can, you know, not whether they, what what the Wall Street Journal said, but whether they can right. hook them up for a job, right? I mean, it is that sort of basic intelligence of don't come now, which is what people heard during COVID, right? Things are bad. I, you know, mm-hmm. they're cutting my hours. I've lost my job. I can't hook you up right now. Or now, hey, I mean, I know three jobs yeah. that are open. I can hook you up, right? And so people are getting that message. They have a place to stay. They have someone often who will help pay for the initial fee for the smuggler, the down payment, which is usually about 25% for the smuggler. I mean, so these networks really matter, right? And then you add to that, I, I don't think we're going to see in the Build Back Better bill the the provision for 11 million people. I think it's going to be much more modest. But of course, anything like that could also have an additional effect. But I actually think the bigger effect is just the draw of the U.S. economy and the fact that people have the, you know, the social networks and the fact that people have a really good chance of getting in. I mean, that you know, un- unless the U.S. government begins to figure out and this is persistent. I mean, it's always get caught in partisan politics, but this has been true in every administration. Large numbers of people actually get in, not Mexicans, actually, but but Mexicans try multiple yeah. times to get in, right? But other people, you know, have have for various reasons, because the U.S. government makes lots of exceptions, it is required to legally in some cases, people get in and, you know, people choose to come because they have a good chance of succeeding and that the payoff, if they you know, the, the pain of the journey is, is is real. The cost of the journey is real, but the payoff for their future prospects is also so great that they decide that it's worth the journey. And, Absolutely. you know, mm-hmm. it's hard to, to work around that. As you say, people actually do get in and the risk benefit analysis of trying is certainly worth it. When we consider that people in the Northern Triangle, countries like Guatemala, Honduras, and Salvador, make approximately $5 a day, 
And when we compare that with the possibility of making that amount in the United States in less than an hour, it is not at all insignificant. We spent some time in, in, part, in the western part of Guatemala, the western highlands, in a, a department known as Huehuetenango over the summer. Mm -hmm. And one of the things you see in small towns is they have universities, private universities. In a number of the small towns, you say, what? Why? There's no public, you know, there's not even public high school. Why are there private high schools and universities? But the answer is, you know, you can make that an hour in the United States. So you have people who are probably washing dishes, you know, fathers and mothers who are washing dishes, taking care of someone's kids. They're doing construction in the hot sun, but they're sending that money back so that their child can go to a private high school and a private university and get a degree that otherwise they couldn't. And how you argue against that, unless you create legal pathways, there's no way people are going to stop coming one way or another and trying to make the dangerous journey because the draw is so good. There's nothing else they could do that would give their children the same sort of options in life, right? And that's a powerful draw for any parent. Andrew, you speak about creating legal pathways. At this moment, the U.S. economy needs labor, not only for the construction, the service, and the agricultural industries, but also it needs high-skilled labor to increase its competitive profile as it competes against China. You have technology companies and other businesses asking for additional H-1B visas, for example. How could the U.S. satisfy this need for both skilled and unskilled labor, while at the same time having a more orderly process that could be politically palatable? The whole question of political feasibility matters, right? Because I think there is a lot of uncertainty among Americans about their own jobs. Not all Americans, but many Americans. And so, you know, you can increase things, but you can only increase them so much that it doesn't cause panic among people who are themselves uncertain about their future. But the reality is we have huge needs to be competitive in the high-skilled area. We're seeing companies take their offices elsewhere where they can more easily bring in international talent. And so you don't, you don't want to be losing the talent competition mm -hmm. at the, the high-skilled level. And there it matters not just being able to bring in people, but also allowing people to be able to transition to becoming permanent residents, right? So how do we fix some of the backlogs that exist and some of the way the law is structured that makes it hard for more than a certain percentage of people from a country like India or Mexico to transition to permanency, right? Because other countries are operating this, like Canada. And low-skilled, we definitely need people in agriculture. We know that. That's an area that Americans are just not working in anymore. And so, you know, agriculture matters. But again, I think the question is, how do you give some people, people who do this long enough, also a transition into permanence, right? So we're not creating a permanent, you know, underclass of people that just come every year to work. People have to have you know, some possibility that this becomes a long-term tradition, transition to staying in the U.S. And then there's a the whole conversation on middle-skilled workers that we barely even started. I mean, we don't, you know, I keep thinking of care work as one of those areas that we barely scratched the surface. I mean, we have a huge demand for care workers, particularly in households where both parents work. Um, this has changed a little bit during COVID because often when parents work at home or both, but it's going to change again. And so, you know, it, how do we bring in care workers who, in fact, have skills? I mean, child care, elder care, you know, nurses, secondary medical yeah. care, mm -hmm. nurses. Nurses, we're a little better. We have some pathways on nurses, though we're still short. We still could do more on nurses. But, you know, how do we bring in those middle-skilled people? And then, again, you could do something with legalization as well. I mean, there are people who would be 
eligible to slip into some of those jobs if they had legal status and they're already here, but we're still going to need folks coming from, from elsewhere. And so I think there's a huge niche there that we haven't even touched in our laws. Yeah, obviously, those are people that can come for just a 10-month season. You know, they have to be for three years, and there has to be yeah. a transition to permanence if they stay. But, but it's a whole area we haven't even touched in our thinking about immigration and labor markets. As we said, President Biden did halt the construction of the border wall, and he also changed the narrative. However, his administration has had to keep previously criticized Trump-era policies such as Title 42 or the remaining Mexico program. It appears that there is no consensus, even within the administration, as to what direction should the migration policy take. It is alleged that some Democrats do favor deterrence measures, while others want to stick with campaign promises. These conflicting messages have added to the notion that the administration is not really under control. Andrew, are these messages also being interpreted by people who want to come as an opportunity, and thus they're adding to the chaos we're seeing at the border? Yeah, I think they are. And and I think, you know, smugglers are adept at using mixed messages to their favor. The smugglers can't sell a bill of goods of something that doesn't exist, right? I mean, they really, you know, they're not omnipotent, you know, but they can sell something that's partially true or largely true. And mixed messages are fertile ground, right? Because then people are hearing all sorts of things. And I think the administration has, you know, what I wish they had done is have been really tough at the border, kept Title 42 as they have, which is Trump's measure, you know, maybe even kept MPP for a little while, and then transition to a system where there's a functioning asylum system, where we can determine if people have protection needs, where there is a better way of receiving people when they arrive, even if they're going to be deported, and a better way of deporting them, which is you, there are ways of returning people. There's no good way to return someone to their home country, but there are ways of doing it with more dignity. You know, So I wish they had used six months to craft that system and then drop Title 42 and MPP and then you know rolled out something new. Instead, what they've ended up with is muddling through where they've kept Title 42. This is the measure that allows them to expel people back to Mexico or to their home country and that no chance of asylum and that, you know it's very opaque. And at the same time, they've made lots of exceptions because they know that's problematic, and so they allow people to stay. And it's it's become a muddle. And I'm hoping where they're headed now is turning on an asylum system that works. They put out a proposed rule to have a much better asylum system built on my colleague Doris Meisner's work. There would be a, a more efficient, more fair asylum system where they can make determinations in a few months and not a few years. Let's hope that happens. And then you can also, you know, you can decide who needs to stay in the country. You actually have a way of doing that and return people who don't meet that standard. But I, you know, again, the devil's in the details and how this all gets rolled out. And I I fear until they have the final rule and they can resource it, which is going to be sometime early next year, we're going to see a lot of the same mixed signals and a lot of the same mixed measures holding sway because they don't have anything else that they can put in place. Andrew, we have spoken about some of the short-term measures to try to manage the current surge of migrants at the border. But I would like to ask you a bit more about the asylum process. It is true that the Biden administration has, in fact, increased the number from around 15,000 to a bit more than 60,000, if I am right. 
But we're still seeing a lot of people waiting in the U.S. and also in Mexico, creating a huge stress. What is your view about the current policies and what do you think could be done for people to apply not only at the border or in Mexico, maybe in other countries? It's hard to create a system in home countries, partially because asylum is defined as happening within national territory. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but but also because, you know, I think they're terrified of creating a line that they can't respond to where there's just too many people. But that said, I think there are ways they can do it. I think one of the things that they've been exploring and that we um, are going to publish a little bit about because we've been talking about this for a while is is you could identify people in imminent danger and resettle them as refugees before they have to flee. You know, right now, if someone is in imminent danger in Honduras, you know, the reality is your best option is to flee to Mexico and apply for asylum in Mexico or try and keep going to the U.S. border and apply for asylum in the U.S. You could think of a way that that you could have groups identifying consulates and non, non-governmental groups and U.N. organizations identifying people that are known to be in danger, you know, and you know, giving them an interview ahead of time and then resettling them as refugees. And you have to do a vetting process, but it, you know, it is doable. There's a lot of details that go into how you do this and what happens while people are being vetted and can you protect them, but it is doable, right? So, I mean, in theory, that's doable. They are trying with children already with minors in the Central American Minors Program to identify people who might be in danger and already have family in the U.S. and do an expedited procedure. So there are a number of ways of doing this. And then Costa Rica and Mexico have been immensely generous with asylum. Both systems are completely overwhelmed. So now you're seeing a lot of frustration from Haitians and Salvadorans and others in Mexico because they're waiting for months for their hearing. But, you know, it's it's actually a lot shorter than the United States. In the United States, you can wait three to four years. In Mexico, they are getting to cases in eight to nine months. But it's a long time for someone who's waiting in Mexico who doesn't have legal status, who doesn't have a job. And so there's a lot more that can be done to strengthen Mexico and Costa Rica's asylum system as well. And Mexico and Costa Rica have both been immensely generous about receiving people who are in danger and and want to settle down in those countries. But all this requires resources, and it, it also requires being proactive on issues that don't always, you know, get full public attention. The full public attention is on the border. But, you know, a lot of the solutions, as you point out, are really further inside Latin America, not at the U.S. border, right? If we could do some of this stuff before people, you know, pick up and run to the U.S. border, you know, we would actually take a lot of pressure off the border. We'd be much more humane in our in our treatment, much more proactive. But it's harder to get Americans' attention focused on that. The handling of the migration issue has been President Biden's worst polling issue thus far, according to Pew. The media, and I'm talking left and right, have filled our screens with images of caravans and children crossing the border unaccompanied. No doubt, in the upcoming midterm elections, Republicans will take advantage of this issue. Andrew, what policies can be implemented right now to persuade people to stop coming? You know, I think the only way you persuade people not to come is you give them a legal alternative. Right. I mean, you you have to begin developing the legal pathways, especially seasonal work, you know, eventually also protection mechanisms, but also, you know, seasonal work. And then say, here's a way you can come. If you come this way, we're going to get tough. If you come this way, though, we really are going to try and facilitate it. And you have to mean it. You know, right now, telling people not to come is not working. And every time we've tried to come up with a new enforcement measure, including Title 42 and expulsions, people figure out 
a way around it. So what they figured out eventually with the expulsions is, you know, yes, you can be summarily expelled from the U.S. and it's very fast, but there's no consequences. Right. Right. You can come back. Right. Because officially you haven't entered the United States. So you're not deported. You're not sent back to your country of origin. You're sent back to the border of Mexico. If you're willing to put up with that. Right. And, you know, not everyone is. It's very dangerous. But for people that are willing to risk that, like, look, I'm going to do this five times, 10 times if I have to, but I'm going to get in. And so they started to realize they could get around this. Any enforcement measure, people will eventually figure out some way around it if there isn't a legal alternative. If you if you begin to create the legal alternatives, you have a chance of changing the narrative and beginning to get people in, you know, trying a different way. But you're right. I mean, I you know, and Biden's getting killed on this from left and right for different reasons, right? I mean, he's being the left sees him as being arbitrary and unfair to migrants. And you can certainly make that case. There's almost no asylum system at the border, the you know, summary expulsions. But the right is is upset because you know, a lot of people actually are getting into the country and the system is overwhelmed. And that's not wrong either, right? I mean, there you could make that case pretty easily too. So I, you know, they've ended up in the worst of all worlds, which is a system that is, you know, not transparent, consistent, or fair. It is sometimes humane, but it's not consistent or fair or transparent, right? You don't know what the rules are because they keep changing a bit. They're a little bit opaque. They're not consistent. Some people get in, some people don't. It's hard to tell why. And they're certainly not fair for the same reason. So both sides, you know, by, uh, until they come up with something that is, uh, and they're able to say, look, this is the system you get to the border. We check to see if you have reasons for asylum. If you do, this is the process, and this is how it gets to you know, what's going to happen. If you don't, you're getting returned, and this is the process. Until they get to that point, everything else is going to seem like they're really not living up to to what they should be doing, and, and it's true. Andrew, is there a way for you to know how many people, and more or less what are the profiles of the people that were released in the U.S.? We know that unaccompanied minors have entirely been taken into the U.S. Those who are Mexicans and, and Canadians, not sure there are any Canadians, but those who are Mexicans eventually do often get returned to Mexico. But other nationals of other countries probably stay long term, and very few seem to be there. DHS has done a study on this, and it seems they look from 2014 to 2019, very few are ever returned to their countries. This year, we know that nationals of countries beyond Central America were in most cases allowed in, with the exception of, of a small number of Haitians who were, you know, eight or 9,000, probably not a small number, but small as a percentage who were sent to Haiti in September. But there were about 40,000 other Haitians or 30,000 other Haitians who came in, which probably encouraged others to come afterwards. Um, same thing with Venezuelans and Nicaraguans. And then some Central American families were allowed in as well. It's hard to tell for sure. There's actually a document that DHS put out, the Department of Homeland Security put out. You know, it was a memo around migration, around MPP, that has a table at the end of it. It's only appendix is actually the percentage of people that were allowed in. It's not, we're we're a little unsure how to read it because. It doesn't quite match up with some of the other public data, but what it tells us what we suspect, which is, you know, there are a few hundred thousand people. We don't really know how many in the end that were allowed in for one reason or another out of the 1.1 million that, that came to the border. So it's, a, you know, it's we don't know if it's a third or two thirds. We can't really tell between one and the other, but it is a large number and it's skewed towards families, unaccompanied minors and nationals of countries beyond Central America and Mexico. 
But, you know, and I should say, it, it sounds like, oh, my God, the Democrats are letting everyone in. But if we went back and looked at 2019, you would find actually similar numbers in the Trump administration. And part of this has to do with the fact that it's just hard to process when large numbers of people arrive, the system breaks down and it becomes very hard to process people. And so the percentages let in turn out to be quite high. President Biden and President López Obrador from Mexico recently met and spoke about the need for cooperation on migration. As you know, many in Mexico believe that AMLO is using the migration issue as leverage to keep the U.S. government from interfering in other very important issues, such as the counter-energy reform or human rights or the democratic backlash that we're experiencing. They also spoke about a plan to tackle the root causes of migration in the Northern Triangle. Andrew, are you at all optimistic of the 4 billion U.S. program together with the Mexican Sembrando Vidas program? Will they have any impact or it will just fall through the cracks as other programs have in the past? Yeah, I mean, first of all, on, on the general point, I, I, you know, I, I've always been fascinated by the fact that Mexicans generally feel And as you know, I spend a lot of my my life working on Mexico and Mexico's influence in the United States. And, you know, Mexicans always feel powerless vis-a-vis the U.S., that this is an asymmetric relationship, that the U.S. is just going to tell Mexico what to do. And in fact, I think a lot of the reality is, is smart politicians in Mexico, smart political leaders, figure out that they have leverage points with the United States, that asymmetry works both ways. And... Mm-hmm. You know, often an issue like migration will be an issue that matters politically to a U.S. politician or U.S. president and gives the Mexican, you know, leader a lot of leverage. And asymmetry really runs both ways. I mean, there's no question the U.S. is a global superpower and Mexico is not, you know, is much more of a, a, a regional influence. But asymmetry really runs both ways. And Mexico is always more powerful for good or evil right, for good or bad, is always more powerful in the relationship than than it seems from the outside, right? And, and I think that's a, a lesson worth taking. And I think Lopez Obrador, President Lopez Obrador is no fool, you know, whether one agrees with him or not on the specific decisions, he actually reads politics incredibly yeah. well. And he's not knowledgeable right. on the United States, but he reads politics really well. And so I think mm-hmm. he's figured out his leverage points. But, you know, I think development is important. I think it's a, I, I think the U.S. and Mexico have different ideas about how to do it. Lopez Obrador, his basic idea on social policy is giving money to people directly. The U.S. government doesn't like doing that. It likes giving money to organizations and to projects and things like that. So I, I don't know if they're going to be able to reconcile that. But there, there'll probably be some sort of mutual support or at least U.S. support for Mexico's initiatives for political reasons. But I think in the in the end, it matters a lot to do that as long as you don't think it's going to stop migration in the short term. There, there's a lot of evidence that migration slows down when countries get to ten or twelve thousand dollars GDP per person. You know, Mexico, we saw that, right? As Mexico developed over time, there were fewer people coming. Some of that's the creation of legal pathways to the United States, but some it's just the fact that that life is better in Mexico. It's not perfect, but it's You know, it's it's hard to it's easy to miss this in Mexico because things change slowly. But when you look back over 30 years, it is a changed country. Right. And and people have more options. And there's a huge opportunity cost of leaving your community and trying to move to the United States, especially if you don't have documents. And that'll eventually happen in Central America. And it can happen a lot quicker if we help the countries get there 
but it's going to take a while. I mean, these are countries that are at, you know, three, four thousand, you know, dollars GDP per capita. It's going to take a while to get to 10 or 12,000, which is probably what needs to happen to to make a real difference. And as you said previously, we're not only seeing migration from northern triangle countries, right? So even if we were to fix or to increase the GDP per capita in those countries, we still have Nicaragua, Venezuela, Cuba, Haiti. So it is not a problem that we will stop easily. People will always come to the U.S. from somewhere. I mean, and look, it's also they'll come to the U.S. in part because life is pretty good overall, right? Like living standards are pretty good, but also because the U.S. has projected itself always as a country that welcomes people from around the world. And that's good. We don't want to lose that. But the flip side of that is people take you up on that too, right? I mean, they they also are thinking that this is a place, you know, in, in a way that people don't think of moving to China, right? Life in eastern in you know, the eastern seaboard of China is pretty good also in Beijing and Shanghai. And yet we're not seeing it exactly. Right. You're just not seeing mass movement to China. I mean, there is some movement, but there's but it's not mass movement. People don't think that they can move to China and integrate and that their children will grow up being Chinese in the way people still think, look, if I can get to the U.S., even if I'm not there legally, my kids will grow up there and become Americans and have a life that they couldn't have where I live. You know, and and look, that's a good thing about the United States, but it, mm-hmm. it, it creates its own challenges as well. Um, but you also point out something important here, which is that the, you know, it's not all about economics. It's also governance, right? I mean, some of this is also, I mean, yes, Honduras probably needs to get to $10,000 GDP per capita, but it also matters whether people think that the country functions, right? Whether they feel like that they're not worried about you know, violence in their neighborhood and about drug gangs and drug, you know, drug trafficking organizations, whether Nicaragua ever stops being a one, you know, a one party state, whether Venezuela recovers some sense of democratic governance someday, you know, all those things matter in terms, it's not just money, it's not just economics, it's also, you know, it's also all these governance questions and it's environment. And I I do think there is a question also that we don't understand well yet, around uh, climate change, the increase in hurricanes and other major weather events, longer dry seasons that impact people, particularly in agriculture. You know, and that's another thing that that is beyond sort of strict economics and strict sort of GDP per capita. You know, it affects people in different places depending what their occupation is. You just mentioned some of the U.S.'s greatest competitive advantages. Anyone that comes to this country can actually become and feel American. That certainly does not happen in other countries like China or Japan or Switzerland or Germany. The U.S. is certainly also a magnet of growth, a huge attraction. The English language is the lingua franca of business. You offer opportunities to all who want to come, work hard, and follow the laws. Having said that, Like any other country, you need to have the ability to decide what type of people you actually let in, how many, what are the skills you need. Andrew, as someone who studies and thinks a lot about these issues, what would be your policy recommendations for the U.S. in the long run? You know, the the border is the giant sucking sound for every conversation on immigration, right? Everything comes Mm -hmm. back to, to what's happening at the border. And it is really important, by the way, don't don't get me wrong, it's really important what happens at the border and something I care a great deal about, but it's not the only question on immigration, right? I mean, the larger questions are what sort of legal immigration system do you want? And most people come to the U.S. legally, right? I mean, we can get drawn to 1.1 million people getting to the border this year, 
but the reality is, you know, a little under somewhere around a million people got green cards this year, right? Other people came as student visas and seasonal work visas and, you know, came in and out of the country for periods of time on company transfers and business visas and for short-term stays. I mean, there's lots in immigration policy is so much broader than what happens at the border, okay. right? And, and what happens is we get focus on the border and it sucks the oxygen out of the other conversations. And we stop focusing on what the intentional part of immigration is. How do we make sure the country's competitive? How do we make sure that, that the labor force is, is growing and active at a time of economic growth? You know, and how do we set this up in legal ways? Um, I, I tend to say that you know, progressives underestimate how much border control matters. And if, if people don't feel that immigrants are entering the country legally, it really does undermine the credibility of the system. And I think progressives underestimate that that's a reality. They can, I mean, I don't disagree with the fact that, you know, even people who come undocumented are probably going to do well in the country and their kids even better, but but it does undermine the integrity of the system and it, and it really okay. takes away from the debate. And then people who are more conservative tend to underestimate the fact that border control isn't just border enforcement, that actually border control also involves creating legal channels for people to come, that there's no way... You know, enforcement is a blunt instrument. It is it is part of the equation. You need enforcement, but you also need to create legal pathways for people to come, and you need protection systems for people fleeing for their lives. And it, you know, border control is about all of those things put together. Yeah. And so, hopefully, we can get to that sort of conversation. I mean, how do we do border control? Thinking regionally, thinking you know beyond the border, thinking about how yes, we control the border, but we also create the legal pathways. And we think about protection. And then let's get on to the other topics, which is how do we have a legal immigration system that is is built that can reunify families, which is a fundamental value, but also looks at places in the workforce where we really need talent from around the world. And we need talent at the highest level. We need talent at the mid-level, the care work, and a lot of the jobs that require some skills. And then we need talent what's been called low-skilled, but is actually low-skilled jobs, as everyone knows, actually have a lot of skill in you know agriculture right. and some of the service works. And you know, we need to get onto that conversation of we, we've got an immigration system built for the 1960s with the labor needs of the 2020s. So let's get onto that conversation of what that looks like. Are you optimistic? I'm always optimistic. Um, and, I, and I guess I'm optimistic in part because I think the system overall works despite all its deficiencies. You know, we still are a country that is able to absorb immigrants from around the world and grow stronger for it you know, and has adjusted, you know, as we've changed demographically, we've done well. And, you know, overall immigrants do well, overall the society, you know, the economy is doing, doing better pulling out of a global recession, but, but seems to be, you know, see signs of a, of a strong recovery. I'm less confident that we're going to, to be able to have a rational conversation, you know, and figure out what we do with people that are already in this country contributing, which I think matters with, you know, getting real border control, which is broader than just the border, or thinking about our legal immigration system. I think a lot of this is going to have to be piecemeal, but, you know, piecemeal is okay also. I think there is a, I, I would love to, you know, as, as anyone in a think tank here, we would love to be able to write a policy paper that suddenly gets turned into legislation that becomes the law of the land, but that doesn't happen in reality. What happens is we muddle through things, we have political debates, we take two steps forward and one step back. And I think that's, as long as we're taking two steps forward and not two steps back, I think I think it's okay. And I'm that I that I think we can do. I think we can get forward progress. It just may it's like watching an American football game. 
you know, you, you have a lot of those yardage. You have a lot of series <laughs> where no one scores, right? Where the ball just sort of moves a few yards and moves 20 yards. And then, you know, someone gets tackled and, you know, it's a, <laughs> it's a sack and it goes back six yards. And then maybe you get another five yards. You know, it, it, it goes slowly. But I think over time, you see points on the board. Unfortunately, we have come to the end of this episode. And I would like to close just by highlighting something that Andrew mentioned. Although the border is a giant sucking sound for every conversation on immigration, the U.S. has the ability to control its borders and create, even if only a yard at a time, an immigration system for the 21st century that satisfies its needs for talents at the highest, mid, and low skill levels. I am Mariana Campero. Thank you very much for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog.